Okay. Good morning, everybody. I'm Joe Collins, and we are in a series called Hashtag Jesus. And the idea is we are following Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. Last week, uh, you know, I, I open up, and I like to open up with a funny story. And I heard someone say last week, and I just want to get this off my chest now, that they were, they were excited to hear my cheesy joke. So I just want to know. I don't think my jokes are cheesy, but uh, apparently they are. So I have another cheesy joke. So Jesus and an atheist were having an argument about who was better on the computer. Who had better computer skills. And so they decided to have a competition to prove once and for all who was best, but they needed a judge, so they went and they found an agnostic person. Now, if you don't know what an agnostic person is, that's a person that's kind of in the middle. They're not sure if God exists. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. So they figured he would be the fair guy. And so they got an agnostic person and, and you know, they started the competition. And, and for two hours, Jesus and the atheists just typed away on their computers, going, going crazy. I mean, they were typing, they were mousing, they were making spreadsheets, they were writing reports, they were sending faxes, they were emailing with and without attachments, they were downloading files, they were printing reports, and on and on it went. And just a few seconds before the time was up, a lightning bolt flashed across the sky and thunder rolled. And the power went out. Computers went dark. And after a second or two, the power came back on and the, the computer screens glowed back to life. And the atheist looked at the screens and he cried out, No fair! All of my information's been lost, but Jesus didn't lose any of his. How is that possible? And the agnostic looked at Jesus with surprise and said, I guess it's true. Really, Jesus really does save. <laughs> now, I don't know if you're agnostic or atheist or a believer, but I would ask that you give me the next 25 minutes of your attention. We're going to look at God's word. We're going to share a story from the Bible. And uh, hopefully it'll move your heart in some way today, maybe a little step closer to becoming a believer. Before we do that, though, let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time to be together, and we pray for your spirit to be with us now and speak through me as we look at your word. Help us to be inspired and excited and motivated and, and challenged and, and brought to a new level of understanding of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are going to go to Mark chapter 5. Can you believe it? We've made it to Mark chapter 5, finally! We started this series in January, the 1st of January, and we're just going story by story, so it's taken us some time. We'll pick it up here, Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the, the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore his chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again 
not to send them out of the area. So we pick up the story in Mark chapter 5, and Jesus has headed over to the, across the lake to the region of the, to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, if you look on our map here on the screen, you see the Sea of Galilee at the top of the map, and you see the city of Capernaum. This is where Jesus had just been. He had been along the shore of the Sea of Capernaum, and he had been teaching large crowds of people for an entire day right there, just off the shore, just off the shoreline of the, sea of, Capernaum, of the sea of Galilee at the city of Capernaum. It was evening, and Jesus was tired. Now, the Bible doesn't say that you know, he, he wanted to get away for any, uh, he wanted to go to the other side for any particular reason. But if we, if we follow the account based on what we've learned so far, it was probably to get away. Jesus had spent many weeks, even months, all around the area of Galilee teaching and preaching and healing, and large crowds were following him. They were accosting him everywhere he went. And he got to a point where this large crowd was there by the seashore. He spent a whole day teaching them many great truths. And instead of going back to the shore to get a bite to eat or anything, he looked at his disciples who were in a boat with him. He was actually teaching from a boat just off the shoreline to this massive crowd of people. He said, let's get out of here. We need a break. And they took off to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the east side of Sea of Galilee was a great place to go if you wanted to get away, especially if you were Jesus and you were a Jew. Because the east side of the Sea of Galilee, today we call it the Golan Heights, was an area that was very Hellenized, which meant it was Greek in language and in culture, and it was very Gentile, which meant that there wasn't a lot of Judaism on that side of the lake. And so Jesus left in the evening. That would give him time to get away, and the crowds would probably be more interested in getting a nap or going to bed for the night. And so he could really get away and be alone with his disciples and take a break. So they headed from Capernaum to about here, the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee, some eight, maybe 10 miles away, by boat. And along the way, we learned last week that a big storm occurred while they, were, while they were sailing across the lake, and they almost drowned, but Jesus miraculously calmed the wind and the waves. He ordered nature to stop. The storm, the storm stopped, and the Bible says that his disciples that were in the boat with him were terrified. And we remember that great picture Anthony drew us of the disciples staring at Jesus in terror. And that must have been what it was like the rest of the ride over. They did not know what to do. In fact, they sat there whispering to each other, who is this guy that he can command the winds and the waves? So however long it took after that, they eventually made it to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the Bible says that they got off the boat and almost immediately a man with an impure spirit came to meet them. Now, I want to give you a little background. Mark is a gospel writer. It means, it means that Mark wrote a biography of the life of Jesus based on firsthand eyewitness accounts. Some of them might have been his own, but most of them were probably Peter, who was a close associate of Jesus. And so when we read Mark, we get a very, very descriptive, uh, uh, it paints a picture for us of what was going on. Mark gives us lots of great detail. Now, Matthew and Luke also wrote gospels, biographies about the life of Jesus. And they also used firsthand accounts, eyewitness accounts, etc. Matthew being one of the followers was there at many of these things. Luke, not being a follower of Jesus until much later, he interviewed eyewitnesses. So when we read the gospels, we have a, quite, we have a very um, high level of confidence that what we read actually did happen. These are like eyewitness accounts. And so... 
Mark tells us that Jesus went across the lake and he got out of the boat and a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet them. Now, archaeologists have tried to figure out the location and we don't know exactly where this was, but a good guess is a city called Corsi. It's just about where the star is on, the side, on that side of the Sea of Galilee. And just the, the, the terrain that Mark describes and Matthew describes and Luke describes fits that, that, that location. There was, a, there was a steep bank that did uh, end in a cliff that did spill into the Sea of Galilee. And more importantly, there was a cemetery, and it's actually still there to this day in that area. Now, Matthew tells us that when Jesus got off the boat, there was not one demoniac, but there were two that came charging at the disciples. Why Mark and Luke left that out, I don't know. Maybe only one charged at them. Maybe they both did, but they felt it was only important to deal with the one. I don't know, but it doesn't conflict. We either have, they do mesh well together. There were probably two demoniacs, and they probably both came charging to meet Jesus. Now, I want to point out that by this time, it was probably nighttime when they made it to the port of Corsi. Now, imagine how you would feel being on a boat, just being scared out of your wits by Jesus, and then getting off the boat, and two crazy men come charging at you from the tombs in the middle of the night. This is kind of like all the makings of a great horror story, of a great scary movie. So they get off the boat, and these two guys come charging at them. Luke tells us that this port of Corsi was no longer used because of those two guys. People stopped going there because they were so scared of these two crazy guys. And look at the description we have of one of them. He couldn't be bound, not even with the chain. He broke irons off his feet. No one could subdue him. Day and night, they screamed out. They cut themselves with stones. I mean, these people were nuts. They were crazy people. And, and, and they were violent to the point to where those two guys shut down this little port on this side of the Sea of Galilee. No one would go that way anymore. It makes you think when the disciples were on the boat with Jesus and the storm had terrified them, that they got so scared that they went to the wrong port. Has that ever happened where you, you kind of scared yourself and then you found yourself in the wrong place? Like, what am I doing here? It seems to me that that's probably what happened. So they get off the boat and here they come. They come charging towards Jesus and they fall on their knees and they cry out in a scream. Have you ever been scared and screamed? That's the picture I have of these two demoniacs. Here they are in the tombs doing their craziness. Ah! And then Jesus is there and they go, ah! And they go running over to him and they fall on their knees. Not because they're there to worship, they're afraid. They say to him, what do you want with me? Shouting, probably in fear. Jesus, son of the most high God. They weren't worshiping him. They weren't praising him. They were afraid of him. In God's name, don't torture me. Here were two demoniacs, men possessed by demons, who wreaked havoc on the city that they were in, and they are afraid. It's like a ghost story in reverse. The ghost is afraid of the person. I want to pause for a second because we are talking about demon possession, and this came up earlier in one of our lessons, the idea of demon possession. I just wanted to revisit it because I want to make sure that we have 
a good understanding of, of, of how do we frame this in our minds. Because demon possession is a very mysterious and confusing thing. There are people who say it doesn't exist. There are other people who focus on it so much that they, they seem to be kind of crazy themselves. So what's the, what's the right way to think about it? I think the best way to understand it is clearly the Bible says that it did occur, but it was very rare. These were rare occurrences. So is it possible that demons exist and they possess people? Absolutely. Is it the norm? Probably not. But we do need to make sure that uh, we are aware that there is a spiritual battle that exists outside of us that we may not be in touch with or in tune with. I like how C.S. Lewis put it, one of my favorite writers. He was a Christian intellectual who lived in the last century. He said it like this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. Two is to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devils are equally pleased by both errors. I think I couldn't put it any better myself. I mean, what a great way to think about it. These things do exist. Do we need to walk around in fear of them? Not necessarily, but do we deny that that's true, that there is a spiritual world and a spiritual battle? Of course not. So they fall on their knees and they cry out, don't torture me. The Bible paints a picture for us of the demonic mindset of a satanic, demonic mindset. And at its core, and I want you to catch this because this is an important point, at its core, the demonic, the satanic mindset is that God is bad. That in some way, God is evil. That's how demons and Satan see God. They see him as the bad guy. And throughout Scripture, whenever we see any kind of conversation or, or lesson or illustration about Satan or one of, his, one of his followers, a demon, they generally have, that's their, their perspective, that's their mindset. God is the bad guy. That's how they look at the world. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, those of you that know the story, the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit that they were not supposed to eat from. And what did the serpent do at the, at, his, at, at, the, at the root of the conversation? He caused them to doubt that God had their best in mind, that God couldn't be trusted. There was something off about God. And Satan has continued to propagate that doubt, that question, that mistrust of God ever since the creation of man to this day. And, and make no mistake, it is a demonic mindset that causes us to doubt the goodness of God. The most important thing any of us can do today, wherever you're at in your journey, wherever you're at in your relationship with God, one of the most fundamental things that you've got to hold on to that is a non-negotiable, that you cannot question or doubt, is, is, is whether God is good or not. Once you open that door, to the possibility that God may not have your best in mind, that God may not be all he's cracked up to be, that he may, he may not be the loving, awesome, incredible God that he says and claims to be and other people call him, you have opened yourself up to demonic influence. You've opened yourself up to all kinds of terror and trouble and problems in your life. You may not be possessed by a demon, but you certainly are now 
in the same mindset that a demon has. And so if I could ask you to do anything today, please know this. God is good. Jesus says, so it goes on in verse 8, and Jesus tells the demon to come out of him. The fact of the matter is Jesus is the good guy in the story. He's trying to get this demon out of this guy to help this guy. You may not remember this, but a few weeks back when we were in Mark chapter 3, Jesus was accused by the Pharisees, his own Jewish brothers, of being a demon himself and of casting out demons by, because he was a demon himself. And here we have a clear distinction that Jesus is making. I'm not doing that. He's, he's letting his close disciples know that I'm not casting these, these things out because I'm one that myself. I'm casting them out because I have nothing to do with these things. They are evil. They're of Satan. They're destructive. And I want them gone. So Jesus is clearly the good guy in the story. But something really interesting happens here. It's an unusual interaction. It's one of the few times in the Bible where we have a conversation with a demon. In fact, I think it might be one of the only times in the Bible. Jesus asked the demon its name. What a curious thing. What a curious account. What would be the reason? Why would Jesus even go out through the trouble of asking the demon its name? In other situations, he just cast it out and sent it away. Why in this situation did Jesus ask for the demon's name? Have you ever wondered that? What was the point? What was the reason? Well, I believe there was a point. And the point was not so Jesus would know. The point was so that the men with Jesus would know and we would know. See, Jesus was identifying this man's problem. The Gentiles that lived in the Gerasenes, they couldn't help the guy because they didn't know what the problem was. They, they didn't understand the idea of good and evil and demons and, and, and satanic beings. That their religious perspective didn't incorporate things like that. They had a whole uh, range of various beliefs and gods and all these kinds of things. And so they didn't understand at the core what was wrong with this man. And so all of their solutions didn't work. They couldn't fix the guy because they didn't know the problem. You have to identify the problem if you ever want to change something in your life. If there's something that you struggle with, if there's something that you can't overcome, at some point you've got to name what it is. You've got to identify the enemy. I like to put it this way, spiritual problems require spiritual solutions. Jesus had the solution. No one else had it. What was the solution? God's Word. Now you're going to say, where did that come from? I don't see that anyone here. Well, let me, let me back up. Let's remember Mark chapter 4. We, we went through Mark chapter 4 a few weeks ago, uh, and we went through it for a series of weeks. In Mark chapter 4, just before Jesus left to get on the boat, calm the storm, and end up in the Gerasenes, Jesus spent an entire day teaching parables. And all of those parables were about the Word of God. Number one, the parable of the sower. We've got to receive God's Word with an open, honest, and serious heart. Number two, the parable of the light, of the lamp on a stand. When we receive God's word, it's our responsibility to share it with others. Number three, the parable of the spreading uh, seed, or the spreading plant. Don't hinder God's word as it works in your life. And number four, the parable of the mustard seed. God's word has the power to become the greatest force in your life. 
all four of those parables that Jesus had just taught earlier that day were about the Word of God. The Word of God and its action in the life of a person. We cross the Sea of Galilee, we run into a guy who, who is as far gone as someone could get. He's a, he's a Gentile, he has no Jewish upbringing or understanding of, of God's revelation, of, of, of the divine revelation of God. He doesn't know the law, he doesn't know the prophets, he knows nothing. He's in a Gentile community that has all kinds of random and crazy and bizarre beliefs about the spiritual world. He's possessed by a legion of demons, many thousands. The, the word legion just is a, is a way of saying many. In the Roman army, a legion was 6,000. I don't know if Jesus meant it to be 6,000 demons. It was really a way of saying many demons. This guy was tormented by so many problems, there was nobody farther lost than this guy. And yet God's word was the answer to his problem. And that's what Jesus, why Jesus asked the man his name. I think he wanted to identify the problem, and then he wanted to make clear what the solution was. God's word. It's interesting because it says, after Jesus cast it out, the demon said, don't send us out of this area. That's a curious statement, I think. Jewish tradition says that demons were, were, were given assigned areas where they could work. And maybe the demon was saying, you can't send me out of my area. This is where I'm supposed to be. If you send me out, I can't do anything. I'm, I become ineffective. I don't know if that's true or not. That's a, that's, a, that's a myth that's been carried down. Luke tells us that the demon said, don't send us into the abyss. The abyss is where demons were fine, are, where, where Satan and his, and his demons will be finally judged. And maybe they were saying, please, it's not time yet. Don't destroy us now. Or maybe they were just saying, hey, we found a good area here in the Gesserines. There's no, there's no revelation of God. They don't know the, the Holy Scriptures. They don't have the prophets. They don't have Moses. This is fertile ground for us. Don't let us leave this fertile area. I don't know what the reasons were, but it's pretty clear to me that they didn't want to be where God's Word was revealed. And that's really what I think they asked for. Let us stay here because this is a dark place and we like the dark places. This is where we can have the most influence. This is where we can have the most sway. This is where we can affect people the most, where there is no revelation of God. So if you take nothing away from the message today, if there's nothing else that you walk away with today, remember this one thing. The world is lost without divine revelation. In the Old Testament, they put it this way, people perish when there's no vision. Where God's word is not revealed, where God's will is not made known, the world is a dark, dark place. And so are you and I. If God's word is not relevant, if it's not active, if we are not engaging it in our lives on an ongoing basis, we become a dark place. Because the revelation of God is what protects us it's what puts a, a barrier around us. It's like a light in a dark place, and it pushes evil and evil influences and evil forces away from us. That's why God's Word is so absolutely important in our lives. 
That's why as Christians, we take time on Sunday morning to read a passage of Scripture and study it out because we believe it is the Word of God. And it was written and intended to help us and to enlighten us and to, to protect us from the forces of evil and of demonic influences that are all around us. We must never minimize the power of the Word of God. A friend of mine, Vicki Neergarter, a friend of many of yours, said to my wife recently, God's Word is what changes people. That's a true statement. I think about in my parenting, how many times I try to have talks with my kids and I try to rationalize, I try to argue with them, I try to help them, and maybe I get somewhere, but you know what always works? God's Word. I put God's Word out there and they go, wow. Maybe not immediately, but eventually, over time, God's Word is what will change us. So the takeaway, know God's Word. Interact with it on a regular basis. Let it be important in your life. Don't push it aside. Don't minimize it. Don't blow it off. Let it become prominent in your life. Verse 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went to the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. The people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting in the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let them, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how, has he, had, how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell him the capitalists how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. My son Kelly and I have been reading this passage for the past couple of weeks, and we see a tremendous amount of humor in this story. So Jesus casts out the demon. The demon looks for a place to go. Send us into the pigs. There happened to be a herd of pigs nearby, about 2,000. He, they say, can we go there? He allows it. The pigs behave in an unusual way. Pigs don't stampede, by the way, but because they were possessed here, they stampeded down a hill, off a cliff, and into the Sea of Galilee. Now, I want you to think for one second. There were 2,000 pigs. Now, figure if they're stampeding, let's just, I'm just guessing here, but let's say they were about 10 wide. That would make them about 200 rows deep. If you give about 10 seconds for them to go off the cliff, flounder in the water and drowned. This took about no less than a half an hour. What was everybody doing? Just, just watching one after the other, just pig, row of pig after row of pig into the lake? For at least a half an hour, it was just apparently dead silent while everybody just stood there. I think that's hilarious. It's like that pregnant pause in the comedies, you know, when there's that big long pause in the movie and everybody starts laughing. It, it's, it's just literally hilarious to me. 
They get off a boat. Two crazy demon-possessed guys come charging at them. They fall down. Jesus has a conversation. Next thing you know, they hear the demon speaking. The demon runs over into this herd of pigs. Next thing you know, for the next 30 minutes, this herd of pigs goes running off a cliff into the water. And everybody's standing there like, what? What is happening here? Of course, the people tending the pigs are like, he hates pigs, and they go running into the town. A lot of people will read this, and they'll focus on the pigs. There's people out there that will go, well, these poor pigs. Jesus, you're so cruel. Don't you love animals? What a horrible person you are. He didn't eat pig, but he loved pigs. I love pigs. Pigs are awesome. It would be a mistake for those 30 minutes for those people to sit there and think about the pigs the entire time and not think about the guy whose life had just been saved. That's really what the story's about. It's about the demoniac and his friend whose lives were saved. Forget the pigs. What this tells me, and this is one of those basics that I believe our society has forgotten, and I want to share it with you now because we need to remember it, and as Christians, we need to hold on to it. Here's one of the basic truths. People are more important than animals. God cares more about one man or two men than he does 2,000 pigs. Animals are not people too. They're created. God loves his creation, but they're not the same kind of creation as a human being. And they're not as important as a human being. Let's remember that. Let's, let's share that basic, that truth with the people around us. It really does help order the world we live in when we put things in right perspective, in right priority. And this is just one of many things that our world is getting wrong all the time. God cares more about one man than he does about 2,000 pigs. He cares more about you than he does 2,000 pigs. Man. So the story goes on, and the, the, the guys tending the pigs run into the town. And I always like that, I don't know why, I just imagine these guys as guys that were, had a hard time getting jobs. And so they ended up being the pig herders, you know? Okay, you guys tried out being a shoe cobbler. That didn't work. You tried out construction. No, no, go take care of the pigs, right? And so these guys were kind of the, the, the laborers that had a hard time. And I always picture them running into the town going, it wasn't us. It wasn't us. We didn't do it. We didn't mess up. You know, like they, they, they had a serious interest in letting everybody know that, that they didn't do this. It wasn't their mistake. Jesus did something. So they ran through the town at night, woke everybody up to tell them what had happened. So in the middle of the night, everybody in the town runs out and they come to this scene where there's 2,000 pigs floating dead in the Sea of Galilee. The demoniac is dressed in his right mind, in his right in clothes, and Jesus is standing there. And the other witnesses are like, here's what just happened. Now the people in the town, how do they react? Well, they were first terrified. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with being afraid of God. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
or the beginning of knowledge, right? It's a starting point. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a healthy thing to be a, a, afraid of one who is greater than you, to have a, a fear and a respect and an honor and a reverence towards someone who's better, bigger, more powerful and greater than you. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the start. It's the beginning of something. But then they say, go away. Get out of here. Go away. That was a bad response. That's the wrong way to react when God does something in your life. When Jesus reveals something to you. When something incredible happens, whether it's a near, near accident that you, you realize, wow, I almost died there, but I didn't, or whatever, something happens in your life, or you find yourself at a point where you're like, what's life all about, and why is it worth it? The, and and you, you sense that fear, you sense that like something bigger is out there. The worst thing you can possibly do is shoo it away. Drink it away, party it away, sleep it away, run away. That's the worst thing you can do. The best thing to do is to move closer to find out more, to, to move in and understand what is this all about? Ask the questions. Let yourself think about it. Don't just keep yourself spinning around as a, you know, all the time, 100 miles an hour, so you don't have to think about life. Unfortunately, that's what these people did. They had the wrong response. They shooed him away. In verse 16, though, the demoniac says, can I go with you? He had the opposite reaction. He had the right reaction. Oh, power went out. He had the right response. He tried to move closer. So it's the middle of the night. Jesus and the disciples had just got off the boat. They spent a half an hour drowning some pigs, scaring the daylights out of everybody. The townspeople are there, and they shoo them away. So this was a great getaway, right? They had about maybe an hour there in the Gesserins or whatever it was. Nice break. And they, they, now they got to get back in the boat and head back across the lake because they're not welcome there. And the demoniac is saying, can I go with you? And Jesus says, no, you can't go. Why do you think Jesus said no? We don't tend to think of Jesus as saying no. We tend to think of Jesus as saying yes. He's the good guy. He always wants us to be on the team. But he tells this guy no. And then he says something really important. He says to the man, you go and tell everyone what has happened here. Possibly the two guys, probably. You go and tell everybody what's happening here. You know, this really stood out to me as I thought about the passage because what, what came to my mind was this. This was a Greek area, heavily Gentile, no real profound experience with Jewish law or tradition or, 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 or understanding of God as revealed in, in Holy Scripture. So when Jesus showed up, the fact of the matter was, he was just too bright of a light. Have you ever been blinded by a light driving down somebody's high beams or, or someone flashes a flashlight in your eyes and you're just like, man, I, that's kind of what happened. Jesus was just too big of a light for them. It was a dark place. It was too much. They couldn't handle him. And so they shoot him away. Go away. We can't handle you. You got to leave. You got to get out of here. But Jesus did something awesome. He left the healed men behind. And he told them, you go and tell what happened here. How many people here have ever intentionally or accidentally stared into the sun? Hurt your eyes, right? Like, ah, I'm blind. Then you like blink forever and you can't see anything. But what happens when you stare at the moon? Nothing. It's much more 
receptive, right? You can, you can stare at the moon for a long time, doesn't hurt your eyes. It's kind of like that. Jesus was the sun. He was the light. He was just too brilliant. They couldn't handle it. But these two guys were like the moon. They could reflect the light of Jesus to the people in the Decapolis, this very Greek, this very Gentile, this very pagan environment. They could pass the light on. Where am I going with this? Hopefully you can put two and two together. Where am I going with this? There's a lot of people in this world that would say, well, if Jesus would just show up and get in a big giant blimp and float around the world and let everybody know he's here, then we'd all believe. You know, the truth is, if Jesus did something like that, most people would reject it. Go away. You're no, there's a trick here. Something, this can't be, it's too much for them. They can't handle that kind of revelation all at once. It would be like taking, you know, having one day of calculus and then having to take the final. It's too much. It's more information than people can process all at once. So what does Jesus do? He left people behind. Because people can be a smaller light. We can be a more uh, receptive light for those in dark places. And that's what he's done with you and I. And that's what he wants you and I to be. He left us behind so that we could pass the light on the information, the revelation, the news about Jesus to the people around us because people are more receptive to people than they are to the miraculous. You would think it's the opposite, but it's not. People are scared by miracles. They're terrified. And when people are scared, they, they, they fight or fly. But you and I, well, we're here to tell everybody about him. We're here to ease people into the truth. We're here to reveal what they can handle a little bit at a time until they can accept it for themselves. That's why he left the two demoniacs behind. That's why you and I are still here to this day. We have been left behind to be a light to the people around us. So, Jesus saves. He saves more than just computer files on a computer. He saves the most lost of us. He saves the farthest away people. He's willing to save those that are nearby. There's no one he can't save. But he's left you and I behind to do the job. Now, we've been in Simi Church for little over a year now and a lot has happened in that year Amen. we started out with 30 some odd people and I don't know a couple hundred kids <laughs> and now we have about 50 some odd people and a couple hundred kids but there's still a lot more people in Simi Valley that need saving they're the kind of people who need you to ease up to them to walk alongside, to ease them into it, to reveal a little bit at a time, to help them understand, get them over the hurdles of faith and fear and doubt and misunderstanding. He, they need you. They need me. In, a, in the next uh, few months, we're going to be merging with the Shoreline Church, our sister church that's 
you know, down the grade in, in Moore Park and Thousand Oaks and Camarillo, Oxnard. We're beginning that process of merging. That's why we're doing the two midweeks. The goal is to, is to become a united team, a united force of, of smaller lights that can spread the message of Jesus to other people. We got a lot going on. But let's not miss the most fundamental and important job that Jesus has given us to do. Tell others about him. The Bible at the end there, the passage ends with the, those two men going back to the Decapolis. That was, the, the, that was in the region. The, the region of the Gerasenes was in the Decapolis. The Decapolis was a province. They called it that because it was ten cities. Deca means ten. Capolis means city. And those two men went and they shared their faith about Jesus to the Decapolis, to the Greeks, the pagans, the Gentiles. And the Bible says that the people were amazed. We have that same challenge and that same ability to pass on the message of Jesus and amaze others around us. Let's do it. Let's not shy away. Let's not be afraid. Let's be bold. Let's be courageous. Let's be like those demoniacs and get out there and not hide it, but to share it and see what God will do with it in Simi, in Camarillo, in Oxnard, in Moore Park, in, in Newberry Park, in Thousand Oaks. Let's see what God can do. At this time, we'll stand. We'll close out with a final song, and that will serve as our dismissal.